This episode is brought to you by Waiting Rooms. Waiting Rooms knows there are a great diversity of things you don't really want to do, and you need an excuse to put them off. No one likes elderly Dr. Coldfinger getting tight and personal with their intimates. Do you feel any discomfort when I do this? Yes, doctor. That's why I don't have people do that, not even for free. Job interviews, government bureaucracies, court appearances. Before you face these things, you need a little time and a special place to collect your courage. That's why Waiting Rooms came up with a product that's synonymous with their name. Oh, so long ago now, they first offered their patrons special alcoves to prepare themselves for any unpleasant appointment. And today, Waiting Rooms has pretty much perfected physical life suspension technology. They cover everything. 55 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Chairs that employ hostile architecture so you aren't comfortable however you arrange yourself. An artwork that is sufficiently banal and soul-deadening so you quickly forget that beauty ever existed in the world. And within a very short time, you'll be ready and anxious to move directly to your appointment and face every horror it promises. Use the promo code RERED, one word, to sample their on-hold music that consists entirely of tuneless, distorted guitar. And thank you, Waiting Rooms, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hey, it's been busy. <laughs> yes, it's been it's a lot so going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Busy week of interviews. We talked to Ada Palmer in a bonus episode about her introduction to the new uh, Shadow and Claw edition. Yep. A tour. Yep. And then we got an additional interview with her on the Great Books podcast. That's pretty That's cool. That's right. Yep. Uh, let's see. We got our interview with uh, C. Derek Varn on the Varn Vlog podcast. Mm-hmm. About Gene Wolfe's works and legacy. So the first time that you and I were treated like somebody who knows something about Wolf, and we weren't <laughs> just two guys recording randomness <laughs> on the internet, or 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 grilling someone else about what right. they knew, you know? <laughs> right? But that was fun. Um, it it was kind of cool to sort of step back and just talk about Wolf overall, and which you know, we're so in the weeds all the time. It yeah. feels like a big thing when you talk about one character overall rather than like just in this chapter. But hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah, things other than New Sun. Yeah, I, I just love these uh, conversations like that, which is kind of why I like the, the reader interviews. But usually those interviews don't go the other way. So right. people are asking me what I think. I try to – in fact, I if I do stop and, and say things that I think I – I cut most of it out because it's not mine. <laughs> but thanks to Derek Varn for having us on. And yes. That was really fun. Was yeah, it was terrific. Really and I guess we can, we are not really previewing it, but we also talked to Brian Evanson today, although you guys aren't going to hear it oh, look at a that. little you, while. Look at, you've told but, the kids what's under the Christmas tree. I know. Well, I think we, <laughs> I think we said it online somewhere too. I think yeah, we'll probably say so. Yeah, sure. when it seemed like a good thing, he'd always posted things about Wolf um, every now and then on his 
Facebook feed where I'd see him. And then he just wrote a piece on tour.com about Wolf, um, which to coincide with, I'm pretty sure the uh, new editions, the tour mm-hmm. essentials versions coming out, but it's really fun about how he first encountered Wolf and, um, and some, some initial reactions that I think a lot of people can relate to. Certainly. But it's yeah. definitely fun. We'll make sure to have a, a link to that. Yeah. And, and, and that was a lot of what we were talking about, but we were also talking about to when we were talking to uh, Brian and we were also talking about a lot of other things. So yeah, it'll be fun when you guys hear it. Let's see. Um, on Reddit, Isaac S. Though I'm not quite sure if Isaac would agree. Has some questions about whether Gene Wolfe peaked with Book of the New Sun and why. And this led to a really interesting discussion about whether he did peak with this book. I mean, sure, it's his magnum opus, but he, he was certainly generating quality to the end, in my opinion. And he even, right. you know, has fans of his later works up to at least The Wizard Knight. A lot of people who would call that their favorite. And his short mm-hmm. fiction objectively held up right to the end. And Wolf's magnum opus came after 15 to 18 years of publishing short stories and novels yeah. at the age of 50. And that's actually pretty late in life to generate a magnum opus, yep. unless you're Grandma Moses. So. <laughs> But yeah, and it's it's weird too when you're talking about something that's sort of lots of people think is so mm-hmm. special um, that it's not really just the peak of a career. It's something that you know most people don't even get that kind of right. look that has that kind of following. So yeah, so I mean to to drop off from that kind of rarefied mm-hmm. height is not even unexpected. Come down for some oxygen for one thing. And yeah, I, I think just the main thing about book of the new sun is, it's just, it's got everything that he did as opposed to, Oh, he did mm-hmm. really did good in uh, on this aspect, or he did really good on that yeah. aspect. It's got yeah. it all. And I think that's probably why people, if someone's hooked, it is in conjunction with book of the new sun with reading book of the new sun, even though, in, in, in most yeah. of the cases, even though it it may not ever be their favorite, like like with me. And I know that Isaac was saying that he was worried that he maybe had read the best <laughs> thing, but really wanted to read more Wolf, but was worried, is everything else going to be disappointing? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. I mean. Still fascinating. I remember after reading Book of the New Sun and, and, and Fifth Head of Cerberus and some other short stories, then I came upon um, Shadow of a Soldier of the Mist and I was like, Oh, this is like like the opposite of Severian, and it's so yeah, it's, this is so cool, and it, it's always been rated higher for me than the Book of the New Sun, and you know, then you get some of those middle works that, well, I mean, you're you're a fan of Castle View, so, mm-hmm. and then you know, Long Sun, Short Sun, yeah, people thought, well, you know, he's not doing the kind of stuff he does before, but you know, with Short Sun, you found out he could he could whip that that kind of broke tone out whenever he wanted. So mm-hmm. let's see. I see on Facebook, Jordan Flato has finally caught up with the episodes and he has thoughts about why Thecla's merge with Severian at the feast was different than other people who were there. He says, I have always assumed that it is critical to understand that Severian's power of resurrection, either inherent in him or externalized in the claw, although I lean toward the former. Uh, Jordan, I think, reads this story more by fantasy rules than I do. 
but I'm sure that mine is the more extraordinary reading among the whole of readers. He says, uh, Severian's power of resurrection is both at work internally and externally. This is why Severian's experience of Thecla is different than anyone else's at the feast. Yes, his perfect memory may have enabled him to have perfect recall of all of her ingested memories. Were it not for the claw, it is his power of resurrection, which makes her life in him real, more than simply an integration of memories. As you see, Jordan allows that it might have been different for an earlier iteration of Severian, even though that's not his own belief, but it's fine. But, you mm. know, he's throwing me a sop. And he continues, uh, moreover, it is this property which sets him apart from all previous autarchs once he undertakes the ritual of eating the autarch's brain. Unlike any previous autarchs who may have been able to access the long train of memories of their predecessors in some form, Severian to some degree or another, has all those people living in him, resurrected in him. He is, in a very literal sense, legion. And this makes him the epitome, the culmination of the very, very long project undertaken by the heroes and whomever else has been laying tracks and pulling strings. So I think Jordan's idea of Thecla, as well as the other autarchs, is very similar to your own where she's actually resurrected and living inside him. Mm -hmm. Seems like that, yeah. So Jordan definitely sees this book as having very strong parallels to Frank Herbert's Dune. And there was some discussion on Reddit recently uh, whether whether Wolf had ever read Dune or whether he was highly influenced by Dune. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I don't recall Wolf ever referencing Herbert as an influence. And I even once saw him on a panel with Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert. Oh. Very cool. Yeah, I didn't remember either. I've started flipping through one of the interview books and I didn't, I don't think I, or the interview book, but, <laughs> um, but I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't notice no. anything yet, but I wanted to do more because that, uh, oh shoot, what was his name? Because I may, I jokingly, um, I've forgotten your name. I'm so sorry. But I jokingly mentioned that if you go hunt down and come up with a good, like, here's all the Dune possible mm -hmm. references that we'd, we'd have them on. And oh yeah, that'd be cool. And, and I, I think, I think he's Yay! Try. So all right. Cool. Yeah. That'd be so much fun because uh, yeah, there, there are a lot there. It's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have at least been grilled on it and said, Hey, what do you think of that Dune? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Anyway, so Jordan continues, it's not simply his memory, but his power of internal and external resurrection, which makes him an order of magnitude as zero to infinity different than any of the other former aspirants to the throne. He fully realizes and embodies in a literal sense what every autarch before him had only in shadow. And I think we can, maybe need to, read the entire work with this in mind. It is not just Thecla who appears now and again in a moment of personality confusion, but the myriad of other people he has living in him by the time he is writing the book. They may be faint in some sense, not as immediate as Thecla, but I very much believe they are alive. Not simply a tape library of former rulers, but a living council of will and agency and makes Severian a very literal epitome of earth. If in some sense, Severian is an arc who will carry the essential nature of humanity forward, would Zadkiel be satisfied with a series of arcs that were only a boat filled with 
VHS tapes, or would he wait for the one that contained <laughs> the actual living animals to arrive before unleashing the flood? Severian is the Ark, and he needs to carry forward actual life inside of him, not a simulacrum. Yeah. I think there's a lot there I like. I'm down with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, really, because it's so much more I think about Thecla being resurrected inside of him and the claw bringing people back and all this stuff about memory, but memory becoming alive mm -hmm. again. Um, it, it works yeah. so well that, that I, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but I have to admit there is much about Severian's merging with Thecla and his refutation of Vodalus. I just don't understand. So I don't, and I don't claim to, so he's got, oh, yeah. he's doing better than Lots I Lots of questions, but that thread too was fun because there was a lot of discussion and I think a couple of people took it off in different directions. I know I started wondering about mm -hmm. the claw again. Um, and I just wanted to mention that because I was bringing up, I can't even remember how it came up now, but more about how we know that Severian or the power of the claw comes from, you know, Severian right. star, but... Uh, but it also does seem to be some kind of focus object or something. But Jordan had a, a point and he's, which clicked for me. And I'm like, oh, I, I, I wish I would have thought of that because it's so good. But how even for Severian, even if the claw isn't an actual quote unquote magic item, mm -hmm. it works like a symbol, which helps him slowly over time sort of come into what it means to be this figure and so it maybe helps him for a while yeah. get on that path to think of it as some kind of token or talisman that has some kind of power but over time it's easier for him to really understand and grasp what it means that all of that stuff comes from him and i like that a lot and i think that's really good oh yeah i think for one thing i think it's I still think it's rather um, suspiciously coincidental that he gets the claw within 24 hours after leaving the tower. So I think someone thought it was important. And yeah, I think it probably Providence. in itself, just the fact that he's carrying it, changes Severian's course in some way that mm -hmm. is beneficial. Yeah. On Reddit, Christopher Taylor... Remember we were discussing how odd the statues were and how peculiar Severian's opening paragraph was that seemed to link the statues to some perfect race somehow. Well, maybe the Herodules. By the way, Craig, as you know, I've changed my mind about the proper pronunciation of Herodule. I know I was going to mention something. Based on information about the etymology, which comes to us from Latin instead of Greek. So I've done some investigation on hierogrammati as I've always read it, and learned that it's an alternate spelling of hierogrammat, no E at the end. So maybe the hmm. E should be silent without a hard A. Someone weigh in on that based on language <laughs> and history. You know, I actually, my son's been taking Latin for four years now in high school, and I actually asked him, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> so he was, he was not helpful. <laughs> so much for our educational system. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Christopher pointed out that there is textual evidence that the Hieros are the beings refer being referenced here. In Sword of the Lictor, when Severian meets the three Hierodules at Baldander's castle, and the three of them are examining the claw, and we get this bit. The Cacogen took the claw from him and held it up in his painted glove, though he did not turn up his face to look at it as a man would. 
There it seemed to catch the light from the yellow lamps that sprouted downward from above, and in that light it flashed a clear azure. Very beautiful, he said, and most interesting, though it cannot have performed the feats ascribed to it. Obviously, Famulamus sang and made another of those gestures that so recalled to me the statues in the garden of the Autark. Mm, yes. Very cool. Yeah. So thanks, Christopher. Uh, connection established. Still, there's a mystery. We established the connection between the statues and the Herodules that it's intended. But what is that connection? Christopher acknowledges that. He says, yeah, I'd always assumed they were security for the House Absolute just because of how intimidatingly they're presented. But now you've got me wondering if we actually see them doing any securitizing. The detail of them not following Praetorians' commands is interesting, but inconclusive. They could simply be controlled by a different branch of management. Mm -hmm. Quite true. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I had never noticed, or at least I'd forgotten that point before I reread it this time. And it, that's that thing about disobeying the Praetorians is what set me yeah. off. I will go at not only them, but then others seem to join right in. So, mm-hmm. but Neil Smith Neil had some ideas about how the statues could work as security and still ignore the Praetorians command and follow Severian. He says, most of the time, it seems that the earth does not still produce anything high tech, and that has to be traded for or given by people from other worlds. And these statues are probably such an item, maybe created by the high rows. And just as we might make a robot or statue in a human image, they simply created these robotic guards in their own image. Mm -hmm. They were given or traded to the autark or procured by Father Aniri, and most of the time, patrol as the autark's guards want. But if they are provided by the Hyros, might it not be possible that the Hyros can also override the controls, or perhaps that Father Aniri can? Either way, someone with an interest in Severian's safety might be overriding them to make sure the Praetorians aren't harming Severian and take him where he should go. This fits well with the overall motif of having hidden players pulling strings behind the scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, good yeah. point. Yeah. And I agree. That's probably, I think, now the most likely kind of thing is, yeah, they're, they're Inere's or whoever Inere's working with in particular, which is different from the standard protection or whatever right. that's going on. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that there's some biblical theology parallels to this idea of images. The idea of the worship of an image, an idol, seems to be that the God is in some way present within the image and that the image is the physical presence of the God. So when Paul in Colossians uh, 1, 15-17 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, he's drawing a real-world analogy. So mm-hmm. in a sense, these statues could be images of the hierogrammats or others, and they are, in a way, physically present through those images. Mm-hmm. And that goes right back in a lot of ways to how he talks about symbol. Right, exactly. In the beginning, yep. And it could, there's even something you can make saying like the higher up the chain of, I don't know, divinity or something you are, the closer that is, the closer yep. the image and, I don't know, reality or divinity actually becomes. Could be, yeah, you know. yeah. Perhaps, you know, like... Uh, like Neil is saying, they can use these statues to directly observe a specific location and time within Bria. They are in that way present 
at House Absolute. And no one's talked about the Doctor Who thing with the, the statues. <laughs> the, no, the, no. Don't look at them. Don't but, look at them. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but I did think of that. I was like, I, I so wish there's some way we could say that Doctor Who stuff was about this. But no. I, mean, I don't. Probably not. And Michael Andre Driussi has thoughts about it as well. He notes a parallel between the giant statues following Severian through the garden with the mountain sculptures around Mount Typhon following Severian and little Severian as they hike through. He says, I don't mean that this implies that the living statues were the tools to craft the house absolute as the giant robots were the tools used to carve the monument, but rather that when something unusual happens, consider tracing it to the claw. Hmm. Yeah. I just like the idea that something about statues naturally is drawn to whatever it is about Severian. Severian or the claw or even if it's not like an intentionally created robot thing. I just like it's just such a cool, creepy idea that (laughs) that you are so important that statues will turn to face you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Okay, I could see the statues of the House Absolute maybe following Severian, but even the the faces of the of the mountains in you know it's sort of lictor that they are also being attracted to the claw. That's kind of a Michael self evidently uh, interprets the claw more with fantasy logic than I'm willing at this time to go to. But you know, we'll see. It's really cool. It's very. Yeah. <laughs> it's- Beautiful, beautifully strange. Yes, yeah. Whether yeah. or not it's what's actually well, happening. Actually, I kind of have an idea about those faces, and but I'm going to save it for when we get there. And Mike Farrar. Are your arms from me? Agrees. And he goes further. On reread, it struck me how much of the House Absolute was a conscious imitation of Yassad, home of the Autark's true masters, the Herodules and the Hierogrammets. There's the secret room inside the picture where the Autark meets Severian to the secret portal in a picture to Brook Madrigo on Zadkiel's ship, the Phoenix Throne to Zadkiel's Throne of Judgment, Inari's Presence Chamber and the Autark's Mirror Book, to the black hole chamber in the bowels of Yassad, which returns Sev and Burgundifaria to Bria, the structure of the complex, garden paradise on the surface, yet all the real work is done in the sinister underground spaces, mirrors Yassad, even the path through the garden, which Sev and Jonas tread, which curves and curves again, could be an allusion to the spiral shape so favored by the Yassadis. Given that the gardens above and the complex below, with all their allusions to Yesod, were designed by Aniri, don't the moving statues have to be his creations and perhaps also recall Yesod? The way Severian speaks of them, it seems that they are meant to be remembrances of the lost race of humanity, which elevated the hierogrammats. Aniri tried to capture the perfection of those transcendent beings in gross matter and the semi-living statues are the closest he could come. They follow Severian because he is and will become the new son, and they recognize this in him, much as the Talus giant robots of Mount Typhon do. I like that. I mean, honestly, at this point, I hadn't exactly put it in those terms about House Absolute mirroring Yesed, but it seems totally right that 
Yeah. When he got to write Earth, he's like, well, I'm going <laughs> to make it work in a lot of the ways like I made House Absolute work, which is yeah. the same kind of thing, but on a much grander scale. I think that's I think that's great. Yeah. And what's the old Alchemist's uh, slogan? Um, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, still, you know, as far as it being controlled by the claw directly, the claw as a symbol of power, as an g- engine, some kind of engine of power. Mm-hmm. The Hyros never really address the call at all in Earth of mm-hmm. the New Sun, do they? Uh, no. Someone correct me on that if I'm wrong. I have some unconfirmable thoughts about those mountains, like I said. Yeah. And that fits, too, that with, I think, the way you and I mostly think about it, which is that the claw itself really isn't a magic item. Like, it's just, it's special because it's connected to Severian, and Severian just doesn't quite understand that, right? But it's acting... Um, on a superficial way, like a magic item. And that's kind of yeah. the crazy beauty of this text. Yeah. Yeah. I know any, not any time, but many times when I'll mention something about the claw seeming to have power, Mark Aramino always <laughs> pipes in. And he'll be like, wait, wait, wait. Hold remember, on. Remember. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Stephen Frug. And I can do the Frug. Has finally got to the Shadow of the Torturer summary episode. He says, just when I got to the part uh, in the volume one wrap up where my comments are discussed, which is always fun. The sad part for me is that James says to me, if you're hearing this, you've caught up. But alas, it simply means I have fallen behind new stuff. (laughs) And as I feared, some of what I said has been superseded. Although I would say that my views on Agia Agilis and James's have converged since I commented. Unless they've changed again since then. And yes, they have. Which, let's face it, they probably have. (laughs) Ah, when there's podcasting, commenting to be done, to be done. A belated life's not a happy one, a happy one. (laughs) Well, yeah. I'm just, I apologize for creating a Sisyphean task that you can never (laughs) catch up on. There's just always more junk to listen to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I do think now that Agia is from north of Nessus, not a Nessus native. She's still got a lot going on, though. I'm leaving this comment here like the marks of an explorer whose diary you're following to the center of the earth. So carry on, Stephen. Hopefully we'll meet again beyond the giant iguanas. And <laughs> Let's see. Chris Ott has got to chapter four of Shadow and has chimed in on Facebook. He shared his process. Reread the chapter in audiobook, then a rereading Wolf episode of that chapter, and then repeat the chapter so that he can do that with the different ideas and the things we discussed in his head. Chris seems to be working on the memorization. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of working for me. It, it's His is shorter than ours because I have to spend an hour and a half talking about it. But I do end up being quite confident of what happens in every single chapter. So <laughs> even if I'm wrong about what it means. So he says, so in this way, I'm rereading in innocence, listening to your excellent erudition, then rereading with your thoughts in mind. It is paced just about right for me. 
And then he notes something he thinks that we didn't talk enough about in chapter four regarding a line that could be read as a confirmation that the tunnels and the atrium are connected to time travel, Craig, mm -hmm. and Valeria is a person of the past. I know. And yeah. I got to admit, this one's good. And yeah, he I, says <laughs> as soon as I saw him say that, I was like, do I? I don't remember that line. But, uh, yeah. How, even yeah. doing this, there's still stuff I forget and miss. Yep. Right. He says, I was so taken with the phrase dweller in forgotten yesterdays that I had to stop and add the phrase to my Twitter profile. <laughs> I waited through your podcast episode for you to discuss. And while you did read the phrase, you made no remark upon it. I was flummoxed, especially as you then wondered if there was enough evidence to lend credence to the theory that she was a time traveler <laughs> or that the area somehow lent the ability to travel in time. Anyway, my thought on the time travel capacities of Valeria's domain is that she could have stepped out into Severian's own time from a time in her own without the labyrinth that he wandered affecting his place and time. I'm enjoying the podcast and the additional information that it brings to my reread. I am beginning to wonder if the cult of the new sun is something like the cult of Catholicism in this way. Do members share enough belief in finding meaning in the book that meaning is created in their shared consciousness? Craig, that sounds like Borges, and it's possibly true. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can definitely see it. Yeah. So the idea, too, that it was Valeria who was traveling in time and not Severian, uh, that's kind of cool because I don't think I've seen that before. Um, but the idea that maybe she was the one who was doing something and it wasn't Severian wandering in the, the things. Because, of hmm. course, he goes back and he tries to follow his steps, but it doesn't necessarily – he gets lost again. Um, but I don't know. That's just kind of cool because I hadn't quite heard that. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't really even take understand his comment to be saying that, but maybe that's actually true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. generally we think of her being somehow stuck mm -hmm. in time rather yeah. than traveling yeah. in time. But you have all those dials, and they are dials. They're not sundials, but they're more like clocks or something else. Maybe, you know, where you can arrive at that location from changes over time. I don't know. Yeah, and he says, I was very young when I first read Book of the New Sun and read it as a science fiction fantasy adventure. It left me lost and confused many times, but this guided reread leads me to wonder if we aren't all finding a world beyond the looking glass that is not reflected in reality. <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. Hope not. <laughs> Some of both, but it is kind of fun. Like now, after having done this for so long and it is fun to have a whole little community of people on you know, Facebook or Reddit or whatever mm -hmm. who share all these sort of touchstones. Yes. And, um, and it does help really push your ideas because mm -hmm. everybody's sort of living with their own ideas and questions and problems. And then you can hear somebody else, but then the way that they talk about it, you are also in that same game. And so can really see and feel a lot of the, consequences of that and the implications for how it works. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite the mystic to go <laughs> go so far as to, to say there's something else in there um, or if that would be the Borgesian in that case. I don't know. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, definitely in terms of, you know, some kind of community. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the thing about Chris's uh, comment is that it does illustrate 
how much bringing everybody together on this is vital. Uh, how long ago did we discuss chapter four and how long has it been since nobody has made a big deal out of that particular little comment in mm -hmm. chapter four? And we didn't make a big deal out of it, even though it would have been useful to me to argue against your you know, skepticism. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah, it takes a lot of people to study this elephant. Yeah. Let's see. New listener Mark Mandurano has a theory about the Flower of Dissolution chapter. Well, when Severian and Dorcas are sailing across the lake to get the Avern for his fight. Remember, Dorcas plucks a hyacinth from the water, mm -hmm. the only hyacinth in the lake. And Severian wonders whether that hyacinth only existed because she reached for it. And then she puts it in her hair. Well, Mark says, after Dorcas places the flower in her hair and Severian goes off on one of his wonderful ruminations, both Hildegrin and Dorcas perceive he was thinking about his own death, which Severian denies, but his own narration belies this assertion. Just look at the phrases in the paragraphs, which are all about birth and death. Quote, mm -hmm. the flower came into being, birth, the chill I felt, the darkness that stood between my eyes, nothingness, when night closes our eyes, etc., etc., right to, quote, dead fires being resurrected by the Kamehameha. Mm -hmm. He is most certainly thinking about death. And yeah. though he reports it to us in this highfalutin digression, chances are that in that moment, seeing the flower Dorcas picked, he was reminded of the flower he himself had come to pick and which he was about to risk his life over. Yeah, How, that's good. That yeah. Good. <laughs> How people react to Severian is often much better indicator of what's on his mind than what he tries to tell us his thoughts were. Not that he's lying per se, more like he's hiding certain thoughts, even from himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly agree that this is often true. And then, and then he has an alternate reading of Dorcas putting Severian's hand on her breast when they're talking. He says, I see this in a totally different way. We, we thought it was rather flirtatious and... I don't know, lewd. Dorcas is terribly earnest, not flirtatious like Agia. And although she doesn't realize it now, she's a mother and thus a teacher. She sees this somber young man and is genuinely moved by the heavy thoughts she sees in his face. And she initially sets out to praise him, but he contradicts her. Then she expediently and impulsively proves her point in dramatic fashion by grabbing his hand and putting it in a place from which the initial food of life comes, alive and racing with blood. She teaches through visceral means, a semi-profound philosophical lesson to him, and in doing so shows him that his internal sophistries are for naught when confronted by the flesh and blood world. I gotta say, Greg, I would have loved to have a teacher like this. She <laughs> shows herself to be his intellectual superior, at least in this exchange. And when he asks her where she learned such things, her self-assurance crumbles. She is the mirror image of Severian, whereas he is overburdened by his past and a memory that is more vivid than life as he haunts the labyrinth of his own biography. Dorcas can only respond to the moment, as it were, come to life in a conceptual discussion. When asked about her past, her memory, she faces a shattering void. Cool. Yeah, that's also just 
really well written, Mark. So, yes. And I know it's just a Facebook post, but I'm like, you, you got like two starts of good essays there. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good. That's yeah. the writing teacher in me. I'm like, yeah, that, that's you got to Yeah, 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 keep going. So yeah, was, well, yeah. maybe if you put his hand on your breast, Craig, <laughs> <laughs> it would stick with him. And I think the the reaction would be different from Severe. Probably. Yeah, and and I said there too. I mean, I think it was. I I see that that's what it's supposed to be i guess it, it was just sort of like you know it can i take that seriously you know, <laughs> given everything else i don't know and that's more more question of what seems yeah. plausible but but no i think as far as like trying to to see what the initial sense of the actual chapter was that wolf probably hoped he was doing i think that's a great yeah a great it may well be have exactly yeah. what he was going for yeah Let's see, Gary Owens. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. Is thinking about those Averns. So in Facebook, he says, I'm thinking about Father Ineri allegedly placing Averns in the Garden of Endless Sleep because of manatees in the Lake of Birds. I've read the mermaid myth is based on manatee sightings. So are the Averns there to discourage the Undines? If that's the case, is there reason to keep the megatherians away from the kumayan that's a good point mm-hmm. um i mean obviously i th- think agents of Volus seem to be reaching out to the kumayan anyway but why would you let the you know the the megatherians use your mirror gardens that you're using to <laughs> communicate yeah. with the kumayan for their own purposes and honestly, that makes more in-world sense than we had a manatee Than keeping problem. manatee yeah. infestations <laughs> away, yeah. that, which is just a crazy idea in itself. I, I really uh, appreciate that. But yeah, I like this. I do like this better. Yeah. And as soon as he said that, I was like, why didn't we think about that? Of like manatees being, or we might have mentioned undines. Yeah, we are discussing, but, we have discussed maybe those manatees but, are not manatees, but yeah, undines yeah. themselves. But we didn't ever think about why they would really be there. I'm right. possibly trying to get to the command. So yeah, no, I like it. Okay. Let's see. Uh, on Facebook, Michael Grant is reading ahead. He says, realized recently that since Asapego, Barbados and Famulimus are moving backwards through time, from their perspective, they advise Baldanders after having spent time at Autark Severian's court. What's up with that? Well, you no, know, maybe we should let, future chapters worry about their own problems <laughs> but and then i don't have to deal with all the time travel mess in my head. yeah, yeah that's it's always... not even time travel it's like how do two times function <laughs> at the same time like, well ah. we'll have to face that eventually but you know, although i've often speculated that baldenders might have been a failed candidate for the new sun i i don't think that's possible i they helped him i think it's clear because the science he's going to generate would without him later, uh, help future generations in a direction that's favorable to the goal of the Yasadis, whatever those goals are. Yeah. That's what I think. But uh, by the time we get there, I may well change my mind. Yeah. Well, let's see. This is getting long. But what the heck? Let's check out the YouTube comments. Shamino Warhen is thinking about a discussion in Chapter 3 from Shadow the Torturer. He says, I always thought the reason why the torturers were supposed to ignore what the prisoners say is to avoid having the guild holding any form of political power. 
seems as though the guild is utilized either to execute or to horrify the political opponents of the autarch, and that the guild at some point in the past traded confessions they gained with the autarch's enemies or with enemies of their guild. This explains their diminished status among the other guilds and in the Commonwealth in general. Hmm. Well, that makes sense as far as it goes. Uh, this is a debate that hasn't been fully resolved here. I think, although some people have said that the, the torturers aren't supposed to be communicating with the clients at all, I think that there is evidence to argue that at least Master Gurlow interrogates prisoners and takes confessions, but the guild code we obey and the pretense that Gurlow maintains with authorities of being an ignorant, mindless human tool might well be connected to allaying fears that the torturers might be a threat. Perhaps that does reflect a previous misuse of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing has a long tail. Yeah. Yep. So hard to know because everything is just suggested. Yeah. Well, I'm recording this from Texas, where we have a very weak governor. Uh, up to and including the authority to grant pardons and sentence commuting. And this is because a particular governor and his wife, who subsequently became governor, were openly selling pardons and commutations. Uh, There's a movie from a few years ago, The Highwaymen, starring uh, Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson, about the guys hired by the Texas Rangers to track down Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. And there's a brief mention of that ongoing scandal at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I missed that. I didn't even know about that movie. Oh, yeah. It was not bad. Oh, wow. Pretty good. That's what happens when you leave Texas. You <laughs> find out about the things, but I can hunt that down. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. You can watch it outside of Texas, too. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, that is. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but we are. you and I are both Texans in different ways. That's right. A, yeah, yeah. I'm a I am long a... <laughs> expatriated Texan from over from 20-ish years ago now. Yeah. yeah I was born and raised and I'm a long immigrant from about 40 years. And yeah, yeah a lot of family from Texas. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, YouTube uh, listener 242 Sighting thinks that there is a phallic joke in Severian putting Terminus S between him and Baldanders in the bed. Good point. But then we moved on to the discussion of video games and the times that Terminus S was employed in a video game. We've already talked about Dark Souls 3, mm-hmm. which I've yet to play. It's been over a year, James. You've okay. had time. <laughs> Look, I can, <laughs> since my kids grew how, up. How did you spend COVID? Why didn't you just play video games like everybody else? <laughs> my kids have grown up and left the house. And <laughs> my daughter no longer is a manager at GameStop. So I don't follow video games, you know, even at a tertiary level, the way I perhaps <laughs> once did. Uh, pretty much my video gaming is limited to Red Dead Revolver, building games in Disney Infinity. I know that's supposed to be dysfunct, but it still technically works. And also Cuphead. So obviously I'm not a very cosmopolitan video gamer. <laughs> uh, but he says, quote, there's a sword named Herunting in Castlevania, Symphony of the Night, and it was renamed Terminus S for the English version. And in the game Path of Exile, there's an executioner's sword named Terminus S that makes your attack faster when it hits. Those are all pretty cool examples. Cool. Yeah. And honestly, I, well, I did, I think I might've actually even owned that Castlevania game once upon a time, but the other one, I didn't even know what it was, but yeah, <laughs> my video game knowledge is very specific. <laughs> oh, Hey, we got an Apple podcast review. This one is by I and O. So maybe two people or two people in the same body. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> I and O says title, a must listen for wolf fans. 
It's possible I already had some presentiment of my future. Warning, this <laughs> podcast will take you down the rabbit hole of Book of the New Sun theory. This one, and the next one, and the next one. The hosts have great respect and admiration for the author and the material and bring in other wolf writers and theorists to cover the material in depth. Your head will spin, and at times you will think, that can't be right, or... I don't pronounce the word that way. <laughs> All grist for the mill. Simply wonderful. Thank you, I, and thank you, O. It means a lot. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. You keep the crooks and charlatans and business babe. But do you appreciate your while we're thanking people, we need to thank our new patrons. So first, we have some new journeyman-level patrons, which I'll remind everyone gets you access to all the bonus content on Patreon, where we're still talking about Jorge Luis Borges. So thank you so much to David, to Caitlin, and to Nuno Martins. We've also got new master level patrons, which is the level where you can get some occasional extra bonuses in the mail, like some custom stickers, um, which also I can now say are going beyond just the podcast logo to some, I, I guess, new and custom art. But you also get a personalized musical tag we play each time you make a comment. That's the closest you can get to a cool little avatar in an audio only medium, I guess. Plus, James loves finding the clips because now he can find like new musical trivia instead of just getting one little song for the outro each show. And we've had a bunch since last time. Thomas Gamble. Isaac S., whose tag you've already heard once. Though I'm not quite sure if poor Isaac would agree. Tobias. Gentlemen, this is Captain Tobias Wilcock, welcoming you aboard Coconut Airways Flight 37. Ryan Manning. Your name is in the man and, you and Maurice O'Connor. Some people call me Maurice. As always, thank you so much to all of you guys. Supporting us on Patreon helps cover our costs, but also just keeps us going and feeling obligated to make more stuff for everyone. Well, Craig, let's get on with it. We need to follow Gene Wolfe into this next chapter as his sinistrals, so to speak, and we'll try to stay out of trouble, but there's no guarantees on that. Chapter 15, Fool's Fire. Okay. We're on the same day as the Nachos chapter, when Severian and Jonas were fleeing the heat-sucking tissue paper monsters. <laughs> it's three or four days since the Feast of Thecla. Not quite two weeks since Severian left the Tower 35 chapters ago. And speaking of chapters, this is the 50th chapter of the Book of the New Sun. Oh, wow. 50 chapters since we started this book. Wow, Some, so that we don't number our episodes, so I actually don't know how many... That means we're more than 50 episodes into this, I guess. Yeah, like 70 to 90 hours of talking about this book. Not counting what we cut out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not. Yeah. And not including uh, bonus episodes, reader interviews, patron episodes. Dang. And the people are still listening. That means we're Crazy. getting close to 100th episode. That's pretty cool. We're halfway there, man. Well, well yeah, than, actually, of, of all of our stuff. Like, yeah, that's yeah, true. Everything. That's yeah, cool. that's true. We also passed our two-year anniversary somewhere in between the last episode and this one. And if we paid more attention, we'd remember when it actually was. But we don't. But, hey, happy birthday to us. Well, Severian and Jonas have been captured by the Praetorians and tossed into the infamous antechamber mentioned in the title of the last chapter, but never named otherwise. Still not named. 
Severian and Jonas are lying on the floor. Severian had to dive to catch Jonas when the Praetorians threw him in. Severian is on his back, looking up, and ringed by faces. Two women take Jonas from Severian's arms and say, we'll take care of him, and they carry him away. Remember, he's very light. This is the second time we've seen someone carry Jonas, uh, this time women, and Severian is dramatically withholding how light he is, because obviously the writer knows. So I looked, and I am admit, I'm sometimes bad on biblical allusions, but I was so trying to remember about someone carrying someone away and someone being a lighter. I'm like, is, is there some... I don't think there's a biblical. There is the story I, of the uh, of the friends carrying the paraplegic to Jesus yeah. and put, dropping him down the roof. That's really not a connection here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I was just—I feel like that's one where I'm like, if somebody else has some something there, just because at some point Jonas has been carried by so many people. Yeah, <laughs> but it's I, I'm like it—it's starting to we're getting into motif land here. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, he's still being carried around, and the rest of the people start asking Severian questions. What's your name? What are those clothes you're wearing? They have no knowledge of the guild or Carnifexes. Hey, where'd you come from? Did you know someone named this or this guy or her? Have you ever been to, you know, such and such a town? Do you work at House Absolute? Well, we'll see. That's not unusual. Are you from Nessus? Uh, do you live on the east bank of the Gaiole or the west? What quarter are you from? Is there still an autarch? Have you heard anything about Father Aniri? Who's the Archon of Nessus? I wonder. We never did hear who the Archon of Nessus is. <laughs> I wonder if Severian even knows. how the war go? Have you heard about this commander or this trooper or this Chiliarch? Hey, can you sing? <laughs> can you recite poetry? Can you play an instrument? Yeah, which is such a cool line because boredom is yeah. just such a thing. I mean, like there's a line later where Severian later says how, you know, there's only so much you can do here and you talk and right. talk and you play the games until you're just filled with despair. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah, just so great. Yeah. And as it turns out, the questions are coming too fast and he doesn't answer any of them. Well, actually just a few. He seems to have said that he's from Nessus. Finally, a, a gray bearded old man and a woman quote, who seems almost equally old at last, they shush the group and they make them go away and they seem to be in charge. The way they command the group to go away is just to put their hand on the person's shoulder and point to the far side of the room and say, mm -hmm. plenty of time. And finally, everything is quiet again. It's very priest-like, <laughs> the mm -hmm. way that they yeah, do this, yeah. yeah. No, no, yeah, it's very obvious, a very soft power mm -hmm. kind of thing. No one yeah. elected them, but they they all recognize them as yeah. being in charge. Now, the old man says, I'm Lomare. Lomare, it's French. Uh, we'll get to him in a minute. Severian says that his skin was of that pale color peculiar to those who never see the sun. With his straggling beard and uneven teeth, he would have been repulsive in any other setting. But he belonged here as much as the half-obliterated tiles of the floor did. And think, too, with our red, weak son here for Severian right. to say somebody's pale. That's yeah, yeah. Well, really he's probably pale. familiar <laughs> with that because he's got people, you know, in the Oubliette mm -hmm. who've been there for yeah, who knows how long. Definitely. 
The old lady's name is Nicorette. She has white hair, but she wears it flowing about her shoulders as young women do. And Michael Andre Driussi says that he thinks that suggests that, you know, she came here as a young woman. Yeah. And that makes sense that everything about the people just kind of stop. When they right. Yeah. yeah. Or she's just a real hippie old lady. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Saint Lemaire. He was a sixth-century hermit, founder of the Corbian Monastery near Chartreuse, France. Also known as Laudamarius, he lived to over a hundred years old, and that's pretty much his story. And uh, we have reason to believe that Lemaire might possibly be equally as old, right? Mm-hmm. And Saint Nicorette is the name sounds more goth than in saintly. <laughs> Just- because they're smoking? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, she's giving it up. <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, maybe, you know, it just referred to the fact that she was from Nicomedia, which she was. Uh, she was a disciple of St. John Chrysostom. She was a physician and a theologian among the poor of Constantinople, and she once cured John Chrysostom of a tummy ache. <laughs> and when he was exiled for reasons no one is actually sure of anymore, but the consensus is that maybe it had to do with Arianism. She went with him uh, willingly and volunteered. She didn't have to. And perhaps it's the meaning of Nicorette's name because, you know, she's St. Lemaire's assistant. And as we'll see, she goes into exile in the antechamber. So it definitely works with her. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's one time here that the saints names do seem to have, at least with her, do seem to have some good kind of connection to the character. And him um, too. I mean, if him, he's just yeah, old. Yeah, 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 definitely. Still, <laughs> with the, that works. But um, but no, with her, absolutely, that sense of of kind of caring for someone and, and of being a caretaker, but still, you know, being exiled and uh, right. even having a little bit of some kind of voluntary nature of her. Age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She, yeah, she's... She's essentially uh, Mother Teresa of mm-hmm. the antechamber. Yeah. She doesn't have to be here. She came here to minister to the people here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, St. Uh, John Chrysostom has always been super interesting to me. He was the focus of the greatest, nasty, no-holds-barred theological schism since you know, the third century Donatists. Never mind who they are. <laughs> When he was exiled by the church leaders in Constantinople, Chrysostom wasn't going down without a fight. He wrote letters to the Pope and to two of the most influential bishops in the West. The Pope sent emissaries to Constantinople to try to get the judgment reversed, but his representatives had a series of difficulties and never actually made it there. Life and travel was weird at the turn of the 5th century as (laughs) the Roman Empire was coming apart. All travel was an adventure. Just that's that's familiar, actually. Yeah, exactly. travel is dangerous when you're if you have, go on the roads, the soldiers will kill you. Yeah, that's right. It'd be a lot like uh, Severian, actually, mm-hmm. in his travels. So for the next two years or so, uh, Constantinople is divided. There were churches and schism in the city, and Chrysostom once again was not taking the high road. He was writing letters to the churches from exile, which led to him being exiled further away. But then he died two years into his exile and his supporters began, you know, reforming his reputation. And 30 years later, he was canonized, which the church, you know, with the church still in schism, that brought the uh, Constantinople churches back out of schism and and led to, you know, the rejoining of the body. So happy ending. All this has nothing to do with our story. Although, I don't know. I'm sitting here. I'm like, there's, I got to make this work. So I'm, I'm, Let's see if I can wedge this in. I'm convinced. Like, I mean, Nicorette is so appropriate. I'm like, he's the, the, yeah. the, 
it's got to be something. So, but well, but, she's yeah. like, yeah, I, I mean, theoretically, she's like, um, Lomare, I guess, would be John Chrysostom. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Or the people, all the people are John Chrysostom. Yeah. Maybe. The one thing that stands out to me too is that these are two of the very few sort of, um, what I think of as obviously nurturing old people in the Mm -hmm. book. Like if you think about a lot of the older people, like Alton has definitely gone down a rabbit hole, right? Like Alton is in, even though he seems wise and beyond his years, he definitely also has this edge of, of, yeah, I don't want to call him insane, but definitely having gone into some kind of, I don't know, cryptic sense of whatever it is that he's doing. And that seems like what so many people in this book, especially some of the older ones like Alton or like uh, Gerlos and Palamon, they don't have that sort of sense of like a good old grandfather. I mean, even Gerlos and Palamon are frightening yeah. people in their their own way, even when Severian thinks of them nostalgically, right? But these two, it's more like the situation is, that they're in has gotten incredibly strange and weird, but they actually come across as just simply caring right yeah these two people are some of the most what i think of as like simply pure good people that we encounter here like everyone else is complicated in some way or another (laughs) we don't understand even jonas who's like a good friend to severian but has such a complicated backstory that he can't just be a good friend right so so everyone else in this book is so weird in certain ways that these two are in one of the strangest most surreal situations in the books but they seem so straightforward. Right. At least that's yeah. my reaction to them. So I kind of find them, they, these two have always stood out to me. Um, I don't know, you mentioned hippie and there's, there is some kind of like weird sort of simplistic hippiness about them that I've always yeah. liked quite a lot. So Severian introduces himself and Jonas to Lemaire and Nicorette. And Nicorette assures him that Jonas will be fine. She says those girls will treat him as well as they can and hope that he'll soon be able to talk to them. <laughs> wow, Jonas the player. Yeah. She <laughs> says uh, she laughed and something in the way she threw back her well-shaped head told me she had once been beautiful. I, I'm just going to assume that means like good bone structure as opposed to some <laughs> uniquely shaped head that's popular in the common yeah. world. Yeah, and I think something too about like the confidence and the attitude and the, right. Yeah, it's also it's one of those things that though the way it sounds just seems unfortunately phrased. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like she had you had been beautiful. It's like well, okay, <laughs> well, okay. come on, she's an old lady. Why not just say she still had a beautiful attitude? But, <laughs> I get it. Compared to the way I look now, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I was beautiful once. Um, and uh, Severian suddenly realizes that he's really thirsty. Remember, he was fleeing the nodules and then captured and dragged around by Praetorians. It's been a rough morning. Mm-hmm. So they go behind a curtain made of rags to an area that was next to the doors that he used to enter the room. He pours from an, quote, earthenware jug into a delicate porcelain cup. There's a little low table, about a hand's breadth high, and some cushions to sit on. And the mayor says... So before we do that, though, this is one that I think is... I mean, everybody who's read this remembers that, you know, they're they're in an office space. (laughs) Yeah. And they're going to be served coffee and basically... And yeah, honey buns. And honey buns and bagels or whatever. Right. Um, 
right? So that porcelain cup seems like, you know, a teacup or something. And the earthenware jug, that's the one I couldn't quite fit if that was just a weird way to talk about a big tea kettle or coffee something yeah. i don't know but the the porcelain cup always made me think of yeah they, coffee they mugs that are in the, these little yeah coffee yeah. mugs basically yeah maybe maybe they have like a little facebook logo on it mm-hmm. or something like yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or even if it was a, a fancy waiting room or something you know you might be given some kind of mass-produced yeah, <laughs> tea, tea and saucer kind of thing like cup and saucer yeah. deal so yeah house absolute on the front of it yeah. so. <laughs> And Lomer says, question for question, that's the old rule. We have told you our names and you have told us yours. So we begin again. And he says, why were you taken? It's a very, you know, he doesn't know the rules. He he doesn't know. Maybe for trespassing. Yeah. And the thing about rules here, too, is really interesting because I get the sense that part of the reason why he's going to harp on that is you just need something to fill your time and fill your attention. And so having these sort of little games about how conversations work or something is almost necessary just to give some kind of structure to otherwise endlessly empty days. Well, yeah, but also, you know, they get people in regularly all the time, right? And it's the same thing. I want to know all about you and all. And meanwhile, they want to know questions like what the heck of a place is this yeah and so yeah i guess rules make sense the other thing that happens this is similar to the kind of conversation that he and jonas had where he's like i will ask you three more questions (laughs) (laughs) right like like these and this is actually something that wolf does a lot and other people have mentioned it like i can't remember if it's in that uh essay by Kim Stanley Robinson or something or or someone else's, but where they talk about how Wolf has this habit sometimes of having characters do these things of saying, I'm going to ask you two questions and I only expect you to answer one of them correctly. Or, (laughs) but it happens like that all the time. Like, but like in Land Across, which I know you're reading, there are definitely some points where they're like, we can talk about two topics, no more than that. But so these sort of weird sort of conversational rules that pop up is just, I, and I always want to know, like, did Wolf ever have those kind of ticks in real life? Like, did he ever have conversations with people like that? Because it happens so often that I've just wondered if that was just how Wolf did things. Or is it something that signals something to him in his writing? But it's definitely a kind of, of repeated thing. That well, it definitely allows Wolf to limit what he tells us. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is true. That's really uh, true. Maybe something like that happens in the military or it did. I don't know. Now, Lemaire says, oh, okay, so now I understand how you got here. Now, here's how I got here. Lemaire says that he was framed by Chatelaine Leocadia. He was the seneschal of Leocadia's rival, La Chatelaine Nympha. How you get to be someone's rival, I don't know. It could Maybe it's randomly chosen. In this case, it seems to me that a seneschal is the administrator over a noble estate or manor, mm-hmm. handling you know, all the events and arrangements and the hiring and firing and direction of servants. And since it appears from Severian's conversation with Thea that every chatelaine is assigned a house, a chateau, if you will, then it makes sense that every Chatelaine would have a seneschal. Mm-hmm. Even Thea mentions, you know, the, the houses, mm-hmm. the house that would would belong to her. Right? Exactly. Yeah. That she now, yeah, from Thecla's house is yeah, now hers. She right? has, but just can't get to because of exactly. totalist and circumstances. Yeah. 
Right. And so the household arrangements of male exaltants is less obvious in this book. Alton was master of a guild, but you know, given that Kibby is likely to follow him, that seems purely coincidental. We know far more about the life and trials of female exaltants at House Absolute than their, their lives apart from it. Let's see. St. Leocadia was a martyr in Spain in the year 303 during the period of a particularly cruel persecution of Christians there. She was tortured to make her renounce her face, which she didn't. And then she was sent back to prison where she died from her wounds. She sounds a lot like Thecla. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Right. The important uh, church of Toledo was built over her grave. Uh, St. Nympha was one of four patron saints in Palermo, Sicily, about which literally nothing is known, including the century when she died. Maybe the fourth, maybe the sixth. Interesting. But one thing I feel like her name is right for some kind of meaning. Like, Yeah, yeah. You and think and so. I, you wonder if part of the, the fact that they were rivals there was some kind of, you know, sexual <laughs> thing that happened between a lover or something. I don't know. I mean, as we'll we'll see, the Zoltan life can be pretty brutal and nasty. Yeah. So oh, yeah. who knows? It could be could have been pretty something pretty slight. The exultants are as bored. The exultants are as bored as these prisoners here. They it have to stay like, at house yeah. absolute. And- yeah, and it's another example of Wolf talking about how you have this this class hierarchy in the world, but the exultants, even though they suggest that they're of a higher genetic quality or something like that because of the height and all that when you actually find out what they're like there's not a whole lot of evidence for some right for some right, right. real superiority <laughs> there so anyway at some point it actually turns out that lemaire was 28 at the time when he came to house absolute as the seneschal of chatelaine nympha and this reveals of to a first-time reader the first hint of how long people are sent to this room. Yeah. So, you know, so as far as hopelessness goes, this place is a lot like uh, Siberian's Ubalat. Yeah. And he's going to talk about that comparison. In yeah. Just yeah. A little bit. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes people are re- released, usually mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Here it's for most people, it's just endless pastry carts. <laughs> so Nympha brought her Sinistral, Lomare, to House Absolute so he could review with her the accounts of her estate. While she was here attending the rites of the Philomath Focus, a Philomath is a scholar that's like you. It uh, literally means lover of learning. I don't know what sort of rights a scholar would have, but anyway, mm-hmm. you know, that's world building for you. And, yeah, and I'll, it's either that or it's a snide way of talking about what she was really an info for. You know, <laughs> yeah. but that's yeah. that's just me being cynical about her. <laughs> Well, uh, St. Focus was a martyr from the turn of the uh, 4th century. According to tradition, he was a gardener, really a subsistence farmer, I think, on the coast of the Black Sea, who used his crops to feed the poor and help Christians during the persecution of Diocletian. So the authorities sent soldiers to execute him. They didn't know exactly who he was. And so I guess they asked him for directions. And in response, he offered to let them stay at his place and he'd feed them. And in the morning, he'd help them find that focus guy. So the soldiers slept while they did. He went out, dug his own grave, prayed, wrote his will for his possessions to be given to the poor. And then when the soldiers woke up, he told them that he was the guy they were sent to kill. And they said, well, we'll just go back and say we couldn't find you. But Focus said, oh, no. And he buried his neck. They cut off his head and buried him in the gravy duck. And for some reason, 
Focus is the patron saint of gardeners and not hoteliers and service industry. That's a big miss. <laughs> but gardeners because he was fertilizer. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Well, I guess it doesn't work. So now uh, sometimes it actually seems like all the adult exultant women are, are kept at house absolute as hostages. I mean, Thecla grew up there. But you know, we really don't understand how life at court is organized. But it seems easiest to interpret the situation that Nympha is only there for the rights of Philomass yeah, focus. So. That's what I took too, which was strange. But but again, we don't really know like what these people's lives are like. I mean, they seem to no. have estates, places, other times, yeah, it seems like they're stuck at but I guess it's only the the one sister or the one member of the family that's supposed to actually be stuck in the house absolute as part of the harem, right? Well, as there's the a there's a kaibit for Thea, actually. Mm-hmm. So she must have been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's weird. We don't we don't really know. And we do get hints of other people who never really you know, who who live all out in the in the boonies. So right. yeah. Yeah. And according to Lemaire, because this is the sort of shenanigans that the board aristocracy gets up to at the House Absolute, as soon as he had arrived, Nympha's rival, Leocadia, engaged to get Nympha's young sinistral Lomare entangled in a scandal. And she employed the aid of a 14-year-old girl named Sancha. Now, Sancha is going to be the subject of a short story, The Cat. Mm-hmm. That's an endangered species collection and was published within a few months after Citadel of the Autark. So Lomer has heard that young Sancha has died and she grew to be an old woman. So this takes place after the events of the story of the cat. Anyway, according to Lomer, Leocadia had Sancha seduce him. He says, in my day, she was a fine, healthy young woman. The Chatelaine Leocadia persuaded her to it then caused us to be discovered, as Sancha knew she would. She was but fourteen, and no crime was charged to her. We had done nothing in any case. She had only begun to undress me. In the story of the cat, Odillo, a fellow we're going to meet in a few chapters, gives us a description of Sancha. She was about the age of Odillo's father. She had sable black hair and bright of eye. At seven, she already towered above Father Aniri, although he comes off as a shrunken gnome of a man. But does that, I guess the implication might be that Sancha is a young exultant. Still, you know, it might have been easy for Lemaire to imagine that she was older if she was that tall, although he probably knew, still knew better. Uh, let's review Odilo's testimony about this event. So, of the scandal concerning the Sancha and a certain Lomare, then Seneschal to the Chatelaine Nympha, I shall say nothing or at least very little. Although the matter was only too well known at the time, she was still but a child, being then 14 years of age, or as some alleged 15. He was a man of nearly 30. They were discovered together in that state, which is too easily imagined. Sancha's rank and age equally exempted her from formal punishment. Her age and her rank equally ensured that the disrepute would cling to her for life. Lomare was sentenced to die. He appealed to the autarch, and as the Chatelaine Nympha exerted herself on his behalf, his appeal was accepted. He was sent to the antechamber to await a hearing, but if his case was ever disposed of, I do not recall it. The Chatelaine Leocadia, who is said to have concocted the affair to injure Nympha, suffered nothing. Uh, so it's not like Sancho got off scot-free. A Leucadia had really put this kid in a spot by having her take part in this nonsense. Mm-hmm. 
And Sancha had already been apprentice of Aniris for a while, and she was being haunted by an invisible cat familiar for <laughs> seven years. But she married the heir of fours. Mm-hmm. Yep. Odillo said, It was a country family not liable to know much of the gossip of the court, nor apt to care greatly for what it heard. While the Chatelaine was a young woman of some fortune, excellent family and extraordinary beauty. Insofar as we interested ourselves in her doings, she then vanished for the space of 50 years. I kind of believe that every town or location in this book had an actual analogy in South America, but I don't claim to know where this is on a contemporary map. The word fours in Latin means chance. It's the root word for like fortune. If wolf's names are usually so appropriate, so Sancha left the court for 50 years and returned. And then she returned now a widow. She's had several children and her husband had died. Her eldest son managed the estate at Fours, making her the dowager, the, the mother of a ruler or titled nobility. She left the estate, though, because she'd fallen out with her daughter-in-law, who accused her of being a witch and consorting with demons. <laughs> so uh, she became something of a witch, a reputation that was probably both fair and unfair, earned and self-fulfilling. Check out that story. As I've said before, I think this is an important story to understand what's going on in this book, uh, certainly if you want to understand what happens to Jonas. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and with the mirrors and, and it, at the very least, it sort of suggests a lot of things and, and points to ways that you can imagine right. what's going on. Yeah. So Odillo says, um, of the celebrated beauty that had been hers, only the eyes remained. Her back was as bent as Father Aniris. Her teeth had been made for her by a provincial ivory turner, which is a weird way to talk about false teeth, but cool. And her nose had become the hook beak of a carrion bird. For whatever reason, her person now carried a disagreeable odor. She <laughs> must have been aware of it, for she had ordered fires of sandalwood to counter it. Uh, yeah, a sandalwood is a kind of incense used in rituals, yeah. including pagan rituals, witch stuff. Another thing about the exultants here where having, or at least people associated with them, where being old definitely destroys your beauty. It seems yeah, like. Yeah, gotten, that's I mean, interesting. Just yeah. like with the line before about, you know, she had been a beautiful woman mm-hmm. at one time and now the same thing here. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we don't know, you know, how long she remained at House Absolute, so we can't know how old Lomer is, but the old rumors were revived and it caused her to gain a certain amount of popularity late in life among the young, noble female, young, you know, the youngers. Mm -hmm. And Odilla called them her host of protégés. And when she died, there was found a cat's paw print on her top blanket that could not be removed. (laughs) So Odilla ordered the blanket to be sent to the Chatelaine Leocadia, who was still alive and very old, and she was almost blind at the time and had since gone completely blind. But her maid says she saw the cat. She saw a cat, and it stalked her in her dreams. <laughs> yeah, just another reason why the cat is just a cool story. On yeah, its own. She gets, she get, yeah, she gets – yeah, she gets – she finally gets her uh, her comeuppance at the end. Yeah, it's, it's such a cool little story. Like one of the things I love about that story is how it's this really fun little, yeah, like you said, sort of weird kind of little mini revenge story. But um, but it happens in the midst of all this other stuff that's so suggestive. Mm-hmm. It's just such a cool context for such a, a fun little story. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. It's it's so rare to be able to have that kind of experience where you can know this whole world 
kind of and all sorts of questions about it and to just have a weird little story be told in the middle of it. That and I it helps just, understand what's going on in this does. story too. It, it actually gives oh, a yeah. bit, oh, look at all the what's going on, this big full world outside oh, yeah. of this room. Oh, yeah. But I just, and it's just so cool to be able to have a, a like it, it doesn't belong in any genre. It's such a weird thing to have a short, short story that's not directly connected to the events of something, but that refers to so many other things and this other long epic going on. I don't know. It's just such a cool literary kind of experience. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. But uh, here's something really interesting. When Lomer mentions Sancha, something in Severian's face causes Nicorette to say, look, he knows her. And in fact, Severian does know her through Thecla. But not as little Sancha, but as the Dowager of Fours. Well, Severian tells us about her. He says, A chamber of pink and ivory had risen in my mind, a room of which two walls were clear glass, exquisitely framed. Fires burned there on marble heaths, dimmed by the sunbeams streaming through the glass, but filling the room with a dry heat and the odor of sandalwood. Sandalwood. Yeah. An old woman wrapped in many shawls sat in a chair that was like a throne. A decanter of cut crystal and several brown files stood on an inlaid table at her side. An elderly woman with a hooked nose, I said, the dowager of fours. You do know her then, Lomer's head nodded slowly as though it were answering the question put by its own mouth. You are the first in many years. Let us say that I remember her. <laughs> yeah, I guess Thecla was one of Sancho's host of protégés. Yeah, yeah. So one other thing that's just kind of cool about that whole little section there about about learning about how Lomer got there is it's another thing about how we never learn about the upper echelons of society here except indirectly right mm -hmm. like we were talking about Odillo's story and Odillo is a servant right um we get Thecla who is on the obviously she everything Severian knows about her is while she's you know, totally disgraced and about to be killed. We get Thea who's run away from seeing things. So everything we know about this inner world of house absolute comes indirectly, which is so fun of a way to just keep, I mean, if you're thinking about it just from a sort of craft perspective, it's such a cool way to keep the mystery going mm -hmm. because you never just have someone come right out and say, I am of this you know thing yeah. and i'm going to tell you what's true instead house absolute always remains a mystery i mean even yeah. even when we meet the autark <laughs> right, right. Which, like, yeah. it's still confusing and mysterious as hell and that's one of the really cool ways that i mean i think sometimes people will complain about wolf sort of telling you too much like how like i was just joking about how so much in land across is like people sitting around and telling about what happened in other places but here it's done so well in new sun because it's always talking about something that you desperately want to know more about because you hope it's going to explain something about this mm -hmm. world and you always get secondhand and um, you know, strange little asides. Like we learn about them through a little feud that a couple of them had instead of somebody saying, and here is how the exultants fit into the society <laughs> of the world and what their places. And it's such a cool way to keep things unstable. And it's honestly, it's probably more realistic. Like yeah, how, sure. what people would actually be concerned about. Like nobody's going to sit down and explain, let me tell you what the role of the middle class is in America. It's like, no, exactly. instead yeah. you're going to talk about how much you want a Tesla or something. Right. Like yes. So, and yeah. yes. <laughs> What's a Tesla? <laughs> yes. A variant that uh, doesn't answer a lot of the questions we want to know because he considers them obvious. 
Yeah. Right? Anyway, just just another cool setting, which is in this midst of everything else crazy going on, where we're still trying to just learn about the sort of basic structure of the society, and it all comes second hat. Like I've just been thinking a lot about how Wolf is able to explain things without really explaining anything in uh, and not not explain nothing but like just this sort of wonderful masterful right. i will tell you partial things that seem like they're explaining something and they give you this outline but the details don't always fit so, enough yeah. so that you can believe that wolf knows he's just withholding yeah yep, yeah yeah and oddly enough still enough to tell a story and right yeah have sure the story go on yeah so then Severian asks Nicorette how she got there. And it turns out that, like we said, she's volunteered to be there. Mm-hmm. And this really surprises them. She could leave any time, but she just refuses to until all the people here are freed. Someone must make amends for the evil of Earth, or the new sun will never come. And someone must call attention to this place and the others like it. I'm of an Armager family that may yet remember me. And so the guards must be careful of me and of all the others while I remain here. I will leave, but only on my own terms, which are that all those who've been here so long that they've forgotten their crimes be set free as well. Uh, We'll get to how the prisoners have forgotten their crimes that put them here, but Severian (laughs) thinks about giving Thecla the kitchen knife and killing herself and says, is it true that prisoners really forget their crimes here? But Lemaire protests that Severian is breaking the rules here. He says, unfair, question for question. That's the rule, the old rule. We still keep the old rules here. We're the last of the old crop, Nicorette and me. But while we last, the old rules still stand. Question for question. And that's like another moment where Severian is sort of going professional for a second. And instead he's, you know, he's right. he's asking kind of the right question, mm-hmm. but it's it's not the real the real question yeah asking, yeah, right? yeah yeah and of course the reason that they forget their crimes is because uh the original crime was generations ago generations ago yeah. <laughs> so uh Lemaire's question is do you have friends who might try to get you released have you friends relations if you have you may be able to do something for the rest of us um does he have any reason to believe that someone can do anything for the rest of them because they have some? Yeah, yeah. And everybody seems to do that. Right. Thecla was all about, do you know anyone or, or, yeah. you know, do I have some friend that she wasn't really yeah. asking if Severian knew anyone, but she's like, has any of my friends contacted? Me? Yeah. But I she mean, actually had, you know, she did friends. I mean, if Lomare's friend couldn't get him out, then. I guess that's just part of that hope. Yeah. <laughs> that hope that you have to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like a, pointless question but perhaps Mm -hmm. you know it's just a matter of curiosity a way to get to know a person by his connections Mm -hmm. right yeah i mean and nicorette seems to have some hope right well she sure why wouldn't she have hope she can leave anytime she wants yeah but she says she won't do it unless she can get everybody else out too so so she does believe that yeah at least it's possible yeah or at least bring the new sun so that it could happen yeah this is probably is probably the only and the only example like I wouldn't necessarily consider Vodalus an activist so much. He's more like a coup leader or something. But this right. is she's the only sort of like activist person. Right. She's see, right? protesting yeah. the system itself yeah. rather than, you know, just trying to overthrow it. Yeah. Severian knows that Dorcas would try to help him if she knew about this. Dr. Talos, you know, who knows? Severian says he quote was as unpredictable as the figures seen in clouds. And for that reason, 
might seek to have me freed, though he had no real motive for doing so. <laughs> yeah, it seems like totally grasping at straws. For right. And as we know, Severian would not need Talos's help, but it won't come to that. He also thought that since he's ostensibly working as Vodalus's messenger, and he knows Vodalus has a secret agent here who is the Autarch, but Severian still has that message. Even though he had not planned to do any work for Vodalus anymore, he tried to throw it away twice in the last few days, and he couldn't. He says, quote, the Alzabo, it seemed, had laid yet another spell upon my mind. Yeah, and this is the first time we learn about this, that right. Severian has sort of decided at least some at some level that he wasn't going to help the Vodalus. We certainly didn't know that he had tried to throw it away, but they still were making their way here, right? Like he was right. still going towards them. Yeah, but he was going to do that anyway because he knew who would be there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, but yeah, so this is the first time we really know that, yeah, how much he was thinking about turning on Vodalus. But yeah. as he said, he couldn't. And yeah. so I don't know if it's really the Alzabo that did that he blames it on the alzabo that's what photolus um, predicted would be happen right yeah uh, is it due to severian's binding to theclus a devoted Bodolari? or you know is there some effect of swearing an oath under the effect of the alzabo i don't know and that last part is what i feel like him saying that is meant to suggest to you mm-hmm. that like something about you know connecting with someone else is what happens in the alzabo like you you he literally sort of gets someone else in his mind and gets in somebody else's mind. Mm-hmm. But there's also the su- suggestion maybe that, yeah, Yalzabo is like a really, when you're under that, you're under a super, super suggestible state. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, now uh, Severian is glad that he has Votalus's message still because he is thinking, you know, he might need Votalus's help, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know how he could get a message out. Maybe Nicorette has her ways. Yeah, and we're not even sure if he knows who the person is. He's supposed yeah, how's he supposed to, to find this person? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Severian says that he might have friends. Friends, possibly. They may try to help me if they ever learn what has happened to me. Is it likely they'll ever learn what happens to me? <laughs> to that, Severian just kind of summarizes vaguely. He says, in that way, we talked for a long time. If I were to write it all here, there'd be no end to this history. In that room, there's nothing to do but talk and play a few simple games. And the prisoners do those things until all the savor has gone out of them. And they're left like gristle, a starving man has chewed all day. In many respects, these prisoners are better off than the clients beneath our own tower. By day, they have no fear of pain, and none is alone. But because most of them have been there so long, and few of our clients had been long confirmed... Ours were, for the most part, filled with hope, while those in the House Absolute are despairing. Yikes. Yeah, that's, it's, that's where it, it all comes clear. Yeah. Severian estimates that they sat chatting for about 10 watches or more, a full half day. And the lamps in the ceiling seem to dim when the sun goes down. Severian tells Lomer and Nicorette that he has to try to sleep. So they give him a spot nearby the corner by the door. It's really dark there for some reason. They tell him that this will be his place until someone dies and he can get a better place. They have no hope (laughs) for him either. And we'll learn in a bit that people here have something akin to private property. You can't enter a niche of a family without permission. Yeah, so they've definitely 
got some kind of local customs and laws mm-hmm. as it were of a sort. And I gotta admit, when I first realized where this was, I always thought of them as having like cubicles or something like that. But then it's obvious it's just a big open space. Right, right. right. Well, I mean, because, because it's niches, so there might be like like yeah, walls. I mean, like could like could be. Sometimes you see like uh, you inside the architecture of a room, you can see the. The, the structures that mm-hmm. are actually holding a room up. Right, so. right. But then as we're going to find out in this next section, they're all worried about the light of the claw. And it's almost like, hey, could any of the others see it? So that makes right. you think, well, yeah. maybe it is super open. But no, I remember right. I, people have talked about maybe there were cubicles and they each had their own little cubicle, which that would, I think, fit the the sense that he's going to try and give us. Because the one, the one sort of architectural thing that he does tell us eventually is that there was a drop ceiling like in an right. office right yeah, so yeah exactly um, so yeah uh it it's supposed to i think feel very just sort of bureaucratic and, and office. very very 20th century office right yeah and if you think about how much when wolf did write about kind of work life like you think about for right the fact that he would associate office work with despair <laughs> seems yeah. pretty appropriate so sure yeah um it totally fits wolf here and you know i it's one of those things where i partially wonder if wolf really had figured out the whole sort of history of the house absolute in this or if he was like i need to make this place seem horrible and despairing well to me i can now, i Procter definitely associate that with offices <laughs> so we'll just put it in there and it's a nice cool strange surreal yeah. aspect to it so but right. it certainly certainly works there's also it reminds me too of a series of stories that thomas Ligotti wrote um it's uh, oh shoot the book is called i think it's like when when your work is done here um but it's all about just absolute surreal horror and they're all set in office spaces um, <laughs> but really fascinating but really dark reads but yes has the same sort of feel as what the antechamber is yeah oh the, it's called my work is not yet done That's oh okay yeah but it's got three stories in it um and they're all just horrible but they're all about they're all about office situations yeah so just people going to sort of horrible office jobs well now they someone needs to do a zoom horror so yeah yeah the, that actually yeah there's got to, somebody's got to have done some stuff like oh that. there's loads of, of horror stories right oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah we have already seen them so. I thought I was going to get into like when when COVID started I and people started saying we we wrote Zoom dramas about things. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I tried <laughs> to watch a few of them. So I haven't seen any good ones. But if anyone has, let me know, because it seems like such a I don't know, such a situation that's ripe for goodness. But I don't know. yeah, there's going to be the Blair Witch Project yeah. of Zoom horror movies there one day. Was. One day someone's going to figure it out. One thing I did see, I know that the the show Parks and Recreation, they did a sort of uh, a reunion show, but it was all done through Zoom, basically, um, mm. and how they were all in, in COVID during the thing, catching up with each other. And that was actually pretty cool. Mm. Um, but I know I've read about other people trying to do things. But yeah, a horror one would be awesome. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. have to go, when we're done here, I'm going to have to go look some things up. So as uh, Lemaire walks away, uh, he... Severian hears Nicorette say, will they come tonight? And who are they but the gangs of young exultants who come and whip the prisoners? Nasty business. And Thecla used to be one of them. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely a point where uh, the rest of this is a moment of horror, a little bit about learning about Jonas, but also Severian, this is his first real stain on his memory of Thecla. 
I think mm-hmm. is, is what we're yeah. going to see. Here. But we're not actually, we, well, we're not actually going to even see it. That's the true weird That's thing. Right. We'll, we'll right. talk about that, but we're not going to figure out what actually happens at the end of this chapter. That's right. Until chapter 20. Yeah. Until chapter 20. This is chapter 15. Five oh, yeah. chapters. Thank you. And, and one of those is a brown book story. So don't forget. <laughs> don't forget. Our first yeah. brown book story is coming up. But, coming um, up. Yeah, I could not be more happy about it. But yeah, so that's but what happens here sort of leads to that first thing, which is still, even though, yeah, it's five chapters away, but it's still pretty close to after Severian gets Thecla like this. Mm-hmm. And then he gets this first real moment of, yeah finding out some things about her that he doesn't like so much. Yeah. yeah. But we have a, we have another tragedy first. Yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> poor, poor Jonas is <laughs> who we all love as the faithful friend who is yeah. seems seemingly good natured and knows so much. And, but we're going to get in uh, these next few chapters, we're going to get some exposition about the world that people have picked over for decades, trying yeah. to figure out what's going on. Yep. So it's very inconsense that there's a thin floor covering. So he lays down and he realizes that Jonas is already lying there. Severian has seen Jonas walking around, so he knew he, he was okay, but he didn't know he'd been sleeping there. Jonas tells him, Severian, I must escape from here. I must. He takes Severian's hand in his left human hand and says, if I don't, I will kill myself or lose my mind. I've been your friend, haven't I? He whispers, can you use your talisman, the blue gem, to get us out of here? Jonas is a doubter, or at least pretends to be. But I guess, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes, and he's desperate. He saw the Praetorians search Severian, and he knows that they didn't get the claw. So Severian takes the claw out. Its light is really faint. In fact, Jonas asks, is it dying? But no, Severian says, it's often like this. But when it's active, as he puts it, it's really bright. Like when he you know, he took it out for the man-apes. And I, I, I didn't note this in previous readings. I have when, forgotten this line too. Yeah. When he changed the water in his carafe at the end into wine. And I'd always taken away the impression that there was no real reference to that event. But in fact... That was he just Severian's omission of facts. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and I had totally forgotten that. that yeah, he'd seen totally it change the water. Mm-hmm. But now it's not active for no particular reason Severian seems to be aware of. He says, quote, if it can procure our escape at all, I don't believe it will do so now. Jonas suggests, his voice is shaking, that they try it on the door and maybe it'll spring the lock. <laughs> so... Yeah. So a couple things just here that Jonas, who before had been very much like, no, 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 it's the Ulan was alive. It's fine. You know, you just misunderstood something. Something's happened so much to totally shake him. Right. He's, yeah. He would believe anything. He'll try absolutely. anything. Yep. Right. And then Severian is also here really recognizing for the first time. I, I don't know how this thing works. I can't make it work either. You I know, don't he really can... know what it does. I can't right. force it to do it. Yeah, exactly. So they've switched sides just a little bit where, you know, Severian was all about experimenting before. And now he's sort of talking about being frustrated with it. And Jonas has gotten desperate for some right. reason. His, Jonas always seemed rather cool headed before, but now he's, this is totally a different personality that we've ever seen Jonas have. I think. Yeah. And you know, he's already going into Christ. Let's be, be sure. He's going to have be wounded. Severian's going to heal him with mm-hmm. the claw. It will work then. 
but he's already going through some kind of crisis yeah. at this moment. He's going to be living in panic attack and or depression for the rest yeah. of this book. pretty much. And whatever you believe is actually the reason why he's panicking at this point has a lot to do with what you think is actually going on with Jonas. It yep. changes everything, what you decide is happening here. Yep, exactly. So how the details come across in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of the chapters with Jonas, I think, I, I like you said, people have argued for decades about what, what it means. And there are all kinds of ways that people have taken this stuff. So right. we're going to, we'll do our best here to say the way yeah. that we're putting it together. So Severian agrees to try the claw on the lock when everyone is asleep. If he can get the door open to free himself and Jonas, he'll free them too. But he says, quote, if the door doesn't open, and I don't think it will, I don't want them to know that I have the claw. And then he asks Jonas why he's so antsy. Yeah, so he's he starts he's going to go into a little description about how long the people have been here. Do you think he's he's convinced that they may never get out is that why he's antsy that's a possibility obviously i think that's part of it but i i get the sense that what really has shaken him is more that that he's realized something like yeah. because he hasn't and realized something about himself and either what he really is or the amount of time that he's yeah been well here. yeah so it's it's possible. not to yeah. me so much just the mere fact that, hey, these people were here for a long time. We might be here, too, because, I mean, Jonas seems practical enough that he's like, you know, if we got to fight our way out sometime, let's make a plan. Like mm -hmm. like he would have it seems to me like that would have been what he would do. But something about and we'll get to Kim Lee song in a minute, but something about recognizing how long it's been and that they were connected to his past. Somehow, to his something past. He knew a long time ago. That's what I think has really shaken it. it is, it's not clear to me, though, why he should be unaware of how much time has passed. Right. That's the big question that I have about all this. Like, what? why did he not either remember that or recognize that? Yeah. Don't robot, robots have internal clocks that just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's... But this is where it gets into all the arguments that people have had. Like, okay, well, so he's a cyborg. So is the Jonas that we've known up to this whole point. First of all, he seems to have been aware of what he is because he's all cagey about his background mm -hmm. a little bit. So he knows that he's not just a man or a robot wandering around. He knows that, that he was old. Right. So what has happened that now makes him freak out about right. being this old or something? Cause it seems like it's that cause even once yeah. they get, even once they get out of the inner chamber, he's not fine. Right. Right. Yeah. That's why I don't believe it's just like he's worried about being stuck here forever, because if he was, then he would have just been like, OK, great. Let's go find Jolanta now. Yeah. Yeah. He seems you know. I mean, he's once again, he's been around for a long time. He they've gotten out of a lot of jams. Yeah. So I just think he can figure it out. He thinks he's solved this problem. Yeah. So the, the issue I think that a lot of people have is, OK, well, is this like the human part of him waking up and now he has these other memories too that are fighting with him or that he didn't really know the yeah. facts about who he was or now he has two personalities fighting in him and that's freaking him out yeah yeah it, that's what we're going to try and puzzle out yeah right well maybe yeah maybe yeah. the human part didn't realize how long it's been yeah. i don't know yeah but there are a lot of options and we're gonna we're gonna keep coming back to this because there's there's a lot more and the way he reacts to the brown book story later on right. adds some things to it so yeah right so 
So Jonas explains that he was being questioned by a whole family and several old women, a couple men around 50 and 30 years old, probably a father and son, right? And also three other women and a bunch of children. What they asked about was not news of the outside world, so to speak. They asked about the river and places Jonas had been and how many people dressed like him. And they asked a lot about the food outside more than anything else. And why not? This is a wolf novel, right? But some of the questions were crazy. Like, did you ever see an animal butchered? Did the animals have to beg for their lives? Is it true that the ones who make sugar carry poisoned swords and will fight to defend it? And Jonas immediately explains this. Yeah, it's bees. He says, he says <laughs> they'd never seen bees and seem to think that they're about the size of rabbits. Which, by the way, this is a good point to bring up that in one of the other extra stories where we get an Autark named Appian, who many mm-hmm. people think is supposed to be the old Autark, but Appian was apparently a beekeeper. That's right. So, yeah, bees. So after investigating, Jonas learns that none of the members of his family have ever left this room. They are the literal inhabitants of Plato's cave. They've never left. They've been here for generations. He says, most remain here throughout their lives. They have no possessions and no hope of release. They don't know what freedom is. An older man and a little girl told him that they'd like to go outside one day, but he doesn't think they imagine that they'd leave you know, this place forever. He thinks they assume that they'd come back. Hey, here's a good one. The, an old woman said that they're seventh generation prisoners. But one of those women said that her mother was a seventh generation prisoner too, suggesting that seventh generation prisoner has some sort of a local meaning in this room and Mm -hmm. doesn't really tell us how much time has passed at all. No, that's the part that I've always hung on to because I know on on the earth list, some people talked about, well, Jonas can't be too old because it's only seventh generations. And but that whole line seems to me intended to totally throw off the, right. the reference how to long being, it's been i think the yeah. implication there is that it's way more than seven right yeah. how many more we don't know multiples of seven possibly <laughs> you know I just, <laughs> I just don't know and jonas says they are remarkable people in some respects externally they have been shaped completely by this place where they spent all their lives yet beneath that are and then he pauses brace for it he continues Family memories, I suppose you'd call them, traditions from the outside world that have been handed down to them generation to generation from the original prisoners from whom they are descended. They don't know what some of the words mean any longer, but they cling to the traditions, to the stories, because those are all they have, the stories and their names. So... It seemed weird to me that Jonas would say, would have that moment and be like, they're remarkable. Like, like, because he should be panicking. But then when he has, when he says that thing about all they have are their stories and their names, this time it it clicked a little bit. And I was like, well, in some sense, maybe that's all Jonas has too, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. he's so totally out of his element or time that would that be a candidate for an explanation? Like, does he just feel now like, okay, I really am so dislodged from my history that I'm no different from these people and that I am Mm -hmm. totally lost. Like, is that what what got him? But just because of the tone of that little passage there seemed different from the panic attack. 
that he's having. And and that's one thing I was just trying to say. Is that what's – Well, it could be that one? he's come to think of these people after talking to them as in some ways a descendant or mm-hmm. or you know like descendants of nieces and nephews in a way yeah. or something. Yeah. Like his in some way his family. Yep. So – and that's, that's kind of what he gets to in here. In this right. So Varian says he goes silent. In the complete darkness, Varian can hear his breathing, labored breathing from half-robot Jonas. He sleeps. He breathes. He probably eats a little bit. He is literally as human as he is robot. Mm -hmm. Finally, he gets to the point. I asked them the name of the first prisoner, the most remote from whom they counted their descent. It was Kim Lee Song. He says it in one single name. Have you heard that name? Severian has never heard that name. In Severian's world, people have one world names, unless they have a title or, quote, a nickname of some sort that has been attached to it because there were too many Balkans or Altoses or whatever. <laughs> Obviously, you know, for us, it's, it's a Chinese or Korean name. Kim is the most common family name in Korea. He says to Severian, you told me once that you thought I had an unusual name. And I think that's interesting and peculiar to me because Jonas's name would not be unusual. There is a St. Jonas. I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose every saint's name can't be common, yeah. but we haven't met anyone but Severian who has the same name as someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, Kim Lee Swang would have been a very common kind of name when I was, and he pauses, a boy. A common name in places now sunk beneath the sea. So just remembering how long it's been, he knows how long it's been. He knows that the places where he started out, I assume as a robot or that those places are now beneath the sea. It's Mm -hmm. been that long, but this is a hint about how far Jonas goes back. He goes back to a time before the current naming conventions. And if Typhons and the Megatherians' names are suggestive of an older naming convention than we have, then Jonas goes back before them. Yeah. And one other thing, since you mentioned the Megatherians, also the fact that Jonas says that these are places now beneath the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd never thought of this before, but is there some suggestion that that's connected to the Megatherians? Because, I mean, I think that to us, it, it kind of sounds just like as ancient as Atlantis or ancient is lost in history as Atlantis would be to us or some other kind of thing that, you know, the earth has changed so much that now it's, you know, things that are just gone and under the sea. But well, he certainly it, has a lot of personal knowledge of the Megatherians, yeah, and right? It's, the only reason I harp on that a little bit here is because everything else that we talk about beneath the sea in this book is specifically connected to Abaya and Aramis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so that just made me wonder, is there something about the, 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 I don't know. I don't know what it would be because, but yeah, but it did just struck me this time that that was right. yet another possibility. So I think the one thing then we have to say is that, okay, so is he saying that, that he was back so long ago, back when, cultures that we know like either korean or chinese cultures were still around and recognizable right yeah i mean that seems to be the implication yeah definitely yeah i think so so he's aware of how long it's been it's not obvious to me why he's having a panic attack simply because of the amount of time that's passed i just don't think it's because the people have been trapped here for a long time either it's just a curiosity it's it's a signal that he and Severian 
need to start planning how to get out. It's it's not a reason why they need to get out tonight. Is it because, you know, he's realized the super long time span on Earth? No, no, because he knows about these places beneath the sea. He's conscious of great long history. He knows, for example, that he started out as a robot. That's what I think this means, Mm -hmm. not as human parts. But I'm willing to debate it. He knows those places are beneath the sea. I don't I don't think his plane crashed way back that deep in history. I think Jonas must have in some way started out in that deep history, though. Um, mm-hmm. If we're talking about Robo Jonas, then he could have started out as a mere AI without a body, and the body could have just been added later piece by piece. Yep, and that's absolutely a possibility. Not that yeah. he was actually a Korean or a Chinese person, but that whatever yeah AI he was started out back then. And yeah. honestly, that seems more likely and reasonable. I mean, like even if he does have biological parts, it doesn't seem like those could last for eons and eons. And yeah, eons. But, right. Um, yeah, and and then if he is AI, we've also then gotten stories like Syriaca's story about how the AIs went off on ships and went away, and ships are connected to time travel and and all that difference too. So that part I could start to put together a little bit of a story, but yeah. So, but why does it freak him out so much? Because these are all things it seems like he signaled already that he was kind of aware of. Yeah. And it seems obvious because of what he says next, that Kim Lee Suong is someone who is connected to his ship. He says, have you ever heard of my ship, Severian? She was the fortunate cloud. Well, this is a transcription or something of the term Mm -hmm. lucky cloud or auspicious cloud or good omen cloud. I mean, that's like a little motif, actually, in Chinese and Korean culture. And I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out some specific things and other things for cloud, like like what could cloud have been connected to? And I don't know. I mean, did we find some kind of or hear about some pun in Chinese or Korean where cloud was connected to some other name. And so we, we ended up well, knowing some an lucky icon. something. Yeah. It's literally yeah, an no, icon I know, used in, I know. in Chinese art. And right. Right. But I was also trying to figure out like, maybe it was something else. Yeah. Uh, if there was something else. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't really know, but yeah, those, that, the fact that that is actually there, that's the most likely thing I think that he's referring to, which to yeah. me then is again, just something that's connecting it to our culture. Like, yeah. like something recognizable about yes, our yes. time. It does imply that Jonas's ship was christened in Korea or China mm-hmm. in a time yeah. not so far in the future. Right. A time that First Severian is near the dawn of humanity. Yeah. Uh, now this goes back to Michael Andre uh, Driussi's theory that Kim Lee Swong was the navigator on Jonas's ship. And to be honest, uh, it is interesting that Jonas would bring it up in this conversation. Have you ever heard of Kim Lee Swong? Have you ever heard of my ship? That family's ancestor is Kim Lee Swong and Jonah's ship was like a cloud. So it makes sense. Their ancestor came from Jonas's ship. Why is that making him freak out? Let's see. That means that Jonas has been wandering around for at least 14 generations, at least because if her mother is the seventh generation and all bets are off. We don't know how long it's been right, really. Right. Uh, if you're a reader of this book, you know, it doesn't 280 years doesn't seem so long, but like I said, it's could be much longer. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is much longer. I think it's longer than the autarky That's... before the fulgen became black clothing. We'll get to that when we should 
when yeah. people talk about uh, the, the the funeral of the navigator. That point is something that I've often suspected too. That what he's what we're suggesting here, yeah, is that some of these people have been and their descendants have been in this thing back when it was even a mundane office in some other <laughs> structure that the house absolute kind of, you know, took over and, right, and it, yeah. it came there because the way that he describes the architecture for, if you even call it architecture, it's more just like, yeah, drop ceilings <laughs> and right. which sounds so, so mundane that it's almost like there's some connection here that, that these people have been around since the house absolute wasn't really the house absolute, but was just some rando office place. Right. Where you, where um, you stand there and wait yeah, until and, we get and to you. Yeah. That the, the rest of the sort of glory and the second house, the hidden house of house absolute was all kind of built around. And just like he talks about how Nessus took ancient old buildings and they kind of got turned into other buildings and served different purposes and all that kind of thing. Um, that that's kind of what has happened to the house absolute here. seems like it's out in the middle of some weird wilderness under the ground, but who knows how long, ago whatever whatever it was yeah. that kind of deep time is kind of right what it seems like they're suggesting which is i i get that that's kind of terrible <laughs> on its own <laughs> to think that just people have been here that long in this sort of hopelessness and the loss and the waste of everything that would go through but i still don't know if that could account for jonas's panic attack yeah i just feel like there's got to be something more personal to him it um, feels like they've been in this antechamber longer than the man apes have been it, underground right honestly it feels like that yeah and that would be a very kind of cool irony right. <laughs> that i wouldn't put past wolf and by the way i did try to find out as much as i could about the name kim lee sung to try and figure yeah i could out. yeah i've been able and to I, attach him to anybody i do have a Korean friend from high school and I emailed him and asked him and his his only thing which I actually found somewhere else that someone said is that Kim Lee Sung was kind of sounded weird to him because he said that both Kim and Lee are are common family names mm -hmm. but but he I mean he grew up in Texas with me so so he's not yeah. like lived in Korea so I don't know but um but he said it, it certainly could be Korean but it wow. he just said it sounded weird and I did see a, I, there's a post somewhere out there but when i was searching just for what other people might have found where someone else kind of said something similar about that so I, but i don't know i mean i still i mean wolf was in korea <laughs> he yeah. could have known someone with that well, name yeah. for all i know who knows yeah yeah uh so yeah and of course the significance of jonas's ship being called the fortunate cloud it completely slips by severian he says uh, oh uh, was it a gambling ship gambling, yeah mm-hmm <laughs> But at this point, their conversation is cut short. Severian catches a glimpse of a gleam of greenish light so faint that even in the darkness, it was scarcely visible. And Jonas and Severian get up. And as soon as they do, the pandemonium starts. He says, I was blinded by a flash of blue fire, blue and green, Craig. The pain was as severe as I have ever felt. It seemed as though my face were being torn away. I would have fallen if it had not been for the wall. Somewhere farther off, the blue fire flashed again, and a woman cried out. And Jonas starts cursing in an unknown language. <laughs> and, one, and One that he tells us sounds nasal and monosyllabic, which yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> is how, honestly, that's probably how most Westerners might characterize an Asian language. Yeah, yeah. And an electric bolt 
strikes out. He, he tells us, the, the readers, that it's an electric arc because he associates it with the sparks that he saw in the revolutionary yep. give off. Yeah. And then it's just people screaming. Severian and Jonas are screaming too. So here's how he describes it. He says, the greenish light grew stronger. And while I watched still more than half paralyzed with pain and racked by as much fear as I can recall ever having experienced, it gathered itself into a monstrous face that glared at me with saucer eyes, then quickly faded to mere dark. <laughs> All of this was more terrifying than my pen could ever convey, though I were to slave over this part of my account forever. It was the fear of blindness as well as pain. But we were all, for all that mattered, already blind. There was no light, and we could make none. There was not one of us who could light a candle or so much as strike fire into tinder. All around that cavernous room, voices screamed, wept, and prayed. Over the wild din, I heard the clear laughter of a young woman. Then it was gone. Well, this is not, of course, one of Hathor's critters at this time. And we all know what it all is, you know, just like we said, it's the young exultants coming to abuse the prisoners with electric whips. And the Praetorians can't go out of their way to harm the prisoners or the trespassers, but the bored exultants are coming in to whip them. Technically, the guests in the waiting room, they're whipping. Uh, and of course, this is not going to improve the House Absolutes' Yelp ratings. <laughs> it's, um, it's Wolfian because the chapter just ends here. Yeah. We don't get details of what Severian saw. It's going to take a while, five chapters, for us to piece together what happened, little yeah. by little. And the chapter's called Fool's Fire. So apparently that's what those whips are called. But uh, you know, are the fools the prisoners or the people getting their enjoyment from this? Right. And Severian's certainly going to have an opinion about that. Yeah. But I think. But yeah, it's, it's also a cool way, well, not cool, a horrifying way <laughs> to, right. to do the chapter where you get that sort of existential terror of the eons of nothingness that these people had to suffer. And then you find out that, oh yeah, and when it gets dark and nobody can start a light, something comes around that's whipping them with fire and electricity right. and crazy, terrifying faces, that too, which is just frightening as all get out. So yeah, it's a horrible, horrible kind of thing. Um, just since you mentioned the name of the chapter, Fool's Fire, um, it is to me suggestive too of that. Yeah. I think it's directly supposed to be the whips that, but also fool's fire. They don't really know what the claw is. And so in a lot of way, the, the hmm. fire and the light from the claw, they're kind of fools here too, because they don't know what to do with it or if they can help them or, or how to right, use yeah. it. So there's a touch of that going on too. Um, but yeah, definitely a weird chapter. And there's something sort of ironically appropriate that, you would think that light in the darkness would be a good thing. And yet in this chapter, it's either confusing or totally horrifying. Um, and that's also kind of like what happens with Jonas, right? Where he gets some insight of some kind into his history or whatnot, but it actually brings about some kind of terror that we don't really understand. Right. So. And we're about midway through this volume. And I would say that most of the chapters from now on are going to be explaining and confusing <laughs> yeah. with their explanations. Yep, definitely. That seems to be the the mode of this book. Like, like so Shadow had its moments that would go from like I think I feel like at least like clear plot to the Botanic Gardens to mm -hmm. back to let's have a battle with the thing to oh and now you have a magic resurrection thing yeah and it's crazy and you don't know why so but Claw mixes that stuff up in the same chapter like over and over and over again it feels like that you have those sort of moving forward with information that just 
confuses things all yeah. the time. And I think that's that's probably why you'll hear a lot of people say, I only made it halfway through Shadow or I was in the second book, but I just didn't know what was going on because it does seem like that was very intentionally the way he was writing this one. Right, um, yeah. And and just trying to do, like there's it, uh, Van Vo from years ago, or is it Van Vo, I think, or was it in the Slan books, talked about that his way... It wasn't Doc Smith. I think it was Van Vo who who said that um, the way he wrote was he tried to have a plot twist every three pages, like <laughs> like just a total thing. And if you read some of the slam books or some of the 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 other things that Van Vo would write, it does work like that. Like you're reading along and it's just like constantly, but then and changes and and it's mm-hmm. it's it's not so confusing so much as just there's always a new villain or your friend turns out to be evil or something like that. And <laughs> Wolf's doing that here but almost with 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 the world building which is amazing that he can keep it up and that we're still here trying to puzzle it out but that's that's kind of what the experience of claw feels like. yeah yeah for like the next 15 chapters which i think is probably the middle of the book i think that this is the most confusing even with syriaca when Mm -hmm. she's telling what's going on I don't. I don't think that we're really so lost as any of these chapters. I've I've read these over and puzzled over them, and I am lost. And I, I I've been despairing thinking about these chapters. I hope we <laughs> figure something out, but I don't have a lot of confidence in it. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be very yeah. interesting. Well, I can tell that because you haven't mentioned First Severian once this time. Like, I don't know. You haven't yeah. told me how First Severian Salt does. <laughs> I don't, he doesn't <laughs> solve, I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't know anything about jo- Jonas. Jonas could be First Severian. Jonas could be Hathor. Jonas, Hathor could be... I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's a Jonas mess. Jonas is confusing. And and this whole little section here where this is has fascinated and confused me forever. Like, why does Jonas freak out? Yeah. So I, we'll go through some of the other reasons that other people have... Um, given for that uh michael andrew mark Armini, some things mm-hmm. on the earth list and, and we'll run through some of that especially as we as we finish his little story arc here um and unless unless his story arc continues with miles but that's a different question yeah but um <laughs> but yeah so we'll we'll definitely be tearing into jonas here a little bit more but yeah if anybody else has theories about jonas that they want to share please now would be a good time to do it because what i would like to do is talk and, and compare as we get more little sections here in the next yeah run them through run, yeah, run those theories exactly. through with the with the text itself exactly. i definitely want to see that so yeah i hope that you will i hope you'll reach out to us with your theories about jonas that fit with the rest of this chapter we only get a few more chapters with jonas actually and he's one of my favorite guys yeah and so 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 bring him on bring us your theories and then we can you know we can run them through the the book itself and you know also your thoughts your corrections your complaints and bring them to us on the facebook group subreddit the twitter youtube instagram email or patreon site and you can find out how to do all that in the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Farewell, friends. In this dirty old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine People tell me there
Sorry, once again. You see my daddy is dead You see his hair is burning green. He's been working and slaving his life away. My dad has been working every day. Slaving his life away. Oh yeah, my dad has been Someone must make a man. Oh, the dog's going crazy. Oh, Hold on. Sorry, have- Amber. One second. Amber's calling. Okay. I think the dog's going crazy. Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. Gary are Owen. Not, are they not sundials? Why did I? Why do I? No, I no, no. Or? They're, uh, in fact, I don't know if they're, yeah, if it's going to be in this chapter or that we're about to talk about or the chapter 16 uh, yeah we're going to chapter 16 so mm-hmm. i don't i don't know if we already talked about it but those it, it uses a term for the hands of those dials that has to do with um hands oh, for a clock face yeah, 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 yeah. as opposed to a, a sundial that's right cool okay cool. famulium for try again you okay Hmm. Yeah. Obviously, Famulius. <laughs> Try again. Obviously. <laughs> it is not an obvious pronunciation. Yeah, I know it. All right. Look at that. 